0: I'm Taylor Carmen. I teach philosophy at Barnard College, Columbia University, and I write things and lecture about truth, beauty, the meaning of life, and existentialism.
1: Well, you might be Taylor Carmen, but I'm Eric Kaplan, and I'm a TV <laughs> writer in Hollywood with a PhD in philosophy.
0: Huh. And this is Terrifying Questions and How Not to Be Terrified by Them which is a podcast in which we confront some terrifying and unsettling questions. And we try to come to a place of courage where we can think about them. And that's the podcast. What's our terrifying question this week, Taylor? Our terrifying question this week is, is there any such thing as the self? Ah, <laughs> ah! I'm terrified
1: by that. Because presumably it means like if there wasn't, I don't exist. Something like that. That sounds like it. Yeah. Well, is that what could be more terrifying than that? I don't exist. What a, very, what a terrifying
0: prospect. Uh, right. Although Descartes apparently wasn't worried about this because he thought that I exist is the most clear and distinct and self-evident and obvious thing you can possibly think. Descartes thought that. Who was Descartes? Descartes. Rene Descartes was this French philosopher who was writing in the first half of the 17th century, and he's often thought of as the beginning of modern philosophy.
1: Now he's the one who figured out that x squared plus y squared equals c is a circle? Something like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, he was no fool. He, <laughs> um, but...
0: he invented analytic geometry and... He... And, he invented
1: analytic geometry. Okay, so we should treat his opinions with some respect. Um, mathematician, so, scientist,
0: and philosopher. So he yeah. thought
1: his self was the most certain thing one could possibly know?
0: Yeah, he thought that just by thinking, I think, cogito, you could immediately, or you not just that you could, but that you were just immediately thinking your own existence, and there's just no way to get behind that or around it, so it's absolutely self-evident. And now, here's the tricky part, even if you might agree with that. He then said he thought it was the same thing as saying, Sum, I am, res cogitans, which means a thinking thing or substance. So he thought the self is a thing, a substance, and he thought even that was absolutely certain. And philosophers since then have uh, wondered about that part of it. So
1: there's so many things that are worrying. Well, they're worrying somebody. I thought a second ago they were worrying me, but maybe they're worrying somebody else. But I am worried, or somebody's worried. Um, it's sort of hard to say. But like, so the first thing I'm wondering is like, okay, he says that I'm a thing and I'm a thinking thing. Yeah, What's that issue with this thing talk? Like, why does it matter? Yeah. Like, I had a professor, I think you knew him too, Sidney Morgan Besser. Oh, yeah. And he was sort of like is the sky a thing good question is a fist a thing yeah like for me not to be scared do i need to know that i'm a thing or is there some other way to exist and not be scared other than being a thing
0: well i don't know the answer to that but let's Mm. let's think about this descartes thought that thing talk is kind of cheap it comes easy because anything that there is is a thing or a substance He doesn't seem to have worried that he was committing himself too much by saying the self is a thing because anything that exists is a thing. Did he think I'm an eternal thing? He actually did. Yeah. He thought that the soul is immortal because it's indivisible. Yeah, it can't come into different parts and dissipate. Let me fuel the fire of doubt about the thingness of the self, because um, there was a German aphorist named Lichtenberg, I think it was Lichtenberg, who had this analogy. He said, well, if you think that it's obvious from just like the sentence or the thought, I think, therefore I am, that that pronoun is referring to something, you might ask yourself whether it follows from the sentence, it's raining, that there's a thing that's raining. And then you might wonder what that is. So what's raining? This goes back to the sky. Isn't the sky raining? I don't think we say that. <laughs> no, the, sky, the sky was raining today. We don't say that. It was raining or it's two o'clock. I mean, I guess you could say the time is two o'clock. Remember when you used to find out the time, you had a number you could call to find the time?
1: Right, right. There was a very funny cartoon of the woman who was recording that. And she's like, the number, <laughs> the time now is 201. <laughs> the time now is 201 in five seconds. And she's very exhausted. She's standing there in front of a mic, sort of like like
0: we are. Um <laughs> (laughs) But (laughs) But she was saying the time is two o'clock. So you might say, well, okay, there's this thing called the time. But is the time that anyway, who knows what to say about that. But I've heard that linguists actually have a name for this kind of non referring term. They call it sometimes the weather it like it's raining or it's cold or it's hot or it's sunny. Mm -hmm. What's the it? Maybe the I in I think is like that. Maybe really, I think this is what Lichtenberg said, something more like all Descartes really was entitled to say was like thinking is happening.
1: Thinking's going down. Thinking's going down at Descartes' house. (laughs) Um,
0: (laughs) Chez Descartes. Yeah. But come on, Lichtenberg. People do thinking. I mean, don't we? (laughs) Well, yeah, it seems like there's more to it than just that this is happening. I mean, digestion is happening, I guess, after I've had a meal, but I don't feel like I'm at the center of that exactly. It's going on somewhere, but it's that's more like happening. Like the raining is happening. Digestion is happening. You know, I do think there are some mental states that are a bit more like something is just happening, like when I'm dreaming or just drifting in and out of consciousness or sleep, there's stuff happening in my mind. And maybe there's less of a sense of polarized subjecthood or agency. It's just stuff going on. Well, I think it's very confusing, honestly. I think it's very
1: hard because in the most agent-like thinking I could possibly do, let's take this podcast, right? I'm trying Mm -hmm. to express my thoughts about This problem, and I'm trying to solve it. And yet, the words come. Yeah. I don't make the words come. I think that's right. They just come. Yeah. And the thoughts come. I don't make them come. Yeah. Exactly. Like the thing I just said, it just came. I I didn't really make it come. Yeah. But it's strange to say that. I'm in the middle of my thoughts like someone in the rain, and they're just pouring down on me. That's not right either. So I'm
0: perplexed. Yeah. I'm, I'm terrified and perplexed. <laughs> yeah, it's very perplexing. I mean, another example, there's a lot of good examples from our bodily experience. Like, just as you were talking, you probably weren't thinking about your tongue. No. Had I been, I think I would have done a poorer job at it. Exactly. We're going, oh, yeah. dear, You become aware of it. And uh, so there's that. It's quite peripheral. You're not aware of it. That's more like something happening. But on the other side of it, though, you might not have been feeling like you were in the driver's seat and controlling every single phoneme or vowel and consonant and so on. That was kind of going on automatically. I think you probably still had a sense that it was you who were talking. You weren't, like, just listening to somebody. You weren't listening to yourself talk. I was. It's not like listening yeah. to somebody. Yeah.
1: That's yeah. true. But what is the sense... Like, here's the thing that's puzzling. If I try and cash out the facts that I know when I say I know that it was me who was talking, oh. I think any of them is subject to... Like, it could be wrong. Mm-hmm. Like, if I say it was Eric Kaplan who was talking, and then... Someone comes running in with a birth certificate Mm -hmm. and says, you know what? Your name was never Eric Kaplan. It was actually Howley (laughs) J. Rutherford. But then it wasn't Eric Kaplan who was talking. It was Howley J. Rutherford who was talking.
0: Yeah, but that's the special thing about the first person pronoun is that you can't be wrong about the use of the first person pronoun the way you can about a proper name. You could have been wrong about what your name was. But there's a Stephen Wright thing. You know, Stephen Wright, the stand-up comedian, Mm -hmm. used to start a gag by saying, you know, the other day I was walking down the street. Oh, no, that was somebody else. Right. There's a way in which that doesn't make any sense, because when you say I, it's already you. It looks like it's just locked into being right. Well, hang on,
1: Stephen Wright. Maybe we were wrong to laugh at his joke Mm. because it could have not been him because he could have misremembered. Like you could have said the other day, I made a really funny joke
0: on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Wait,
1: no, that was Taylor. (laughs) It wasn't me.
0: That could have happened. I agree with you. That could have happened. Yeah, I agree with you about that. As soon as there's a time lag, it looks like... So there's a time
1: lag. Yeah. That's not right. But isn't there always a time lag? Well... Like, it's funny. People used to say that the example of, I'm not here now, could not possibly be true. Right? But I think that's not true. Because I think what
0: if it takes you a very long time to say it? Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, yes. I had a professor once who, after he introduced Descartes' idea about I think, therefore I am, which is in English, five words. So you get five students, and each one of them picks a word, and you go through with them, and you call them, and one says I, and the other says think, and the other one says therefore. And by the time you get to the end, it's not the same person right? Uh, who started the sentence. It's sort of like that. Maybe that's possible. Right. Would it be different if they said, we
1: think, therefore we are? Have they formed uh-huh. a collective Borg-like intelligence <laughs> By participating in
0: the professor's game. It's interesting that Descartes never considered that. For him it has to just be one single thing or else I mean that would destroy the argument for immortality wouldn't it because then five things could become disaggregated and fall apart and cease to exist and that would so much for the immortality of the soul. Right right. I'm going to say yeah. something. I've got, I've got two things that I've been Yeah. Uh, I've
1: been desperately wanting to say. Good. So I'm going to say the first one yeah. which is I worry that that being that thinks, therefore, it is, isn't me. Oh, I see. Like, if it's an eternal thing about which we know nothing other than that it thinks, I find it hard to build a path from it to me, Eric, who's sitting here and has a body and has hopes, dreams, <laughs> fears, and aspirations. Yeah,
0: yeah, Um Let me go back to the other side in favor of the self view, though, too, because okay. I think if, okay. if we put aside memory skepticism, like, because I Mm -hmm. think I've had that feeling too, like, oh, I had this great idea years ago, and somebody would say, you know, that wasn't your idea. That was my idea. And I think, oh, maybe that's right.
1: I sort of... Sometimes it works out in the other way, which is delightful.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's right. But ask yourself if you could imagine this, that all the time now that we've been speaking, you've been supposing that you were carrying on part of the conversation, and I was carrying on the other part of it. But could it be that as you're talking, or for me, as I'm talking now, it could really be you talking and you're doing both parts and i'm just listening to the whole thing i think there's something impossible about that Mm. well let let me suggest
1: a slightly different example which is like as we're talking i'm sort of monitoring myself and i sometimes think Mm -hmm. oh man i didn't say that as clearly as i wish i would have i kind of fumbled that thing i interrupted taylor by asking the question about descartes (laughs) and he was saying something interesting i should have just let him go so I'm monitoring myself. Yeah, and if somebody yeah, said, uh-huh. you know what, here's here's a science fiction example. Mm-hmm. We've put a thing in your brain, and whenever we think you're doing bad at this podcast, now this is a narcissistic guess that these future scientists are so concerned about the podcast, but that, let's leave that aside. <laughs> whenever we think <laughs> yeah. you're doing bad at the podca- podcast, we press a button, mm-hmm. which causes you to have this thought that it's not good enough uh-huh. mm-hmm. that's conceivable and in fact if you if someone were to say to me yeah. whenever that's happening what it really is is not you it's the internalized critical voice of your mother <laughs> not only do I think that might be true I think it is true
0: yeah well I think so, another thing Descartes didn't really anticipate or entertain is the idea that the self is complex because uh, he thought the self was simple again simple meaning no parts it can't dissolve and therefore it's eternal but he seems to have thought it really just is one simple thing and that's why it's also Not a physical thing because all physical things he thought were divisible. But
1: let me take now we're we're switching. Let me take the Descartes position. Yeah. Even in the case of the person who's dealing with the internalized critical voice, whether it be from science fiction scientists or from his mother, he's dealing with that internal critical voice. Yep. So it seems like I have to say I a unique unitary thing are dealing with these things in my mind that are vexing me or conceivably helping me. So somehow, whenever we talk about it, even when we bring up these multiple self-scenarios... I feel like for me to imagine them, I have to imagine that I'm one being dealing with his fractious multiple self. Yeah.
0: And if you try and substitute it with a first person plural pronoun, you get something bizarre and crazy. Like we were dealing with that stuff about ourself.
1: Oh, why is that bizarre and crazy? I think that happens all the time.
0: Well, no, I mean, when you say it on behalf of what I think is yourself singular, but you put it in the first person, we in here as if you've got a multiple personality thing going on or something or multiple minds inside. Like,
1: you. are you? Yeah. So here's a here's a. A wild self-referential bit of postmodernist theater. Yeah. While we're discussing this, you and I are jumping back and forth
0: between <laughs> who takes
1: the Descartes position and who doesn't. Are we, in a sense, forming a, a hive mind ah. that is dealing with this question?
0: Well, let's
1: let's deal with that when we come back from a break. Exactly. Unless the self is so fragmentary <laughs> that we've forgotten what we're talking about. Exactly. And then we'll deal with something else. Very good. Okay, we're back from our break. So you said, could I imagine that everything that you've said is just a hallucination being created by my mind or that i've actually said it and i'm thinking maybe we should say that there's a group mind we taylor and eric that are playing with these questions tossing them back and forth like a ball in a tennis match
0: well i was going to sneak in there and just Mm. point out notice you said hallucination created by my mind there you've got the first person possessive sneaking in again creeping in so that you can frame the problem and then you switch to the plural that's interesting so but as soon as you say my you're helping yourself to some kind of idea of a self and it may well be that we just can't get around that
1: well hang on hang on now, this is i yeah i hate to turn this podcast into discussion of procedural questions that's okay because that tediousness is part of the reason i left academic philosophy <laughs> but i feel like i can't <laughs> avoid saying yeah so but supposing somebody thought that conjunction uh-huh. that adness uh-huh. wasn't a real thing mm-hmm. and someone said well no it's not I mean, I understand you think that and I understand why you do think that. And they're like, aha, you just used the word and. (laughs) I mean, simply because we have to use Uh, reflexive language, like we have to say itself, myself, does that mean we are secretly admitting that the self exists (laughs) or we just saying that we need to use reflexive Uh, language sometimes. Good,
0: that's a good question. So I would put this by saying when we're asking about whether there is such a thing as the self or if the self is real do we mean that you will discover it through a kind of maximally objective scientific sort of investigation of the, say, the physical world? I think it's very possible, and here I'm really kind of agreeing more with Descartes than I usually do, that if you just think of scientific inquiry as inquiry into the physical world, I think it's very likely that you will never find anything like a self. Self is just not the sort of thing that shows up under that description of reality. But if the question is, is this a kind of essential and indispensable structure of our thought and experience? uh, In other words, can you describe us As soon as I say us, I'm doing what Descartes said, which is as soon as I frame a thought, it's in the form I, I think, Mm -hmm. and I can't even frame a thought without that being a kind of framework of thought. So we're stuck with it. It doesn't have to be a part of the physical world. I mean, this is what drove Descartes to dualism. I mean, he was maybe driving himself to dualism or whatever. He was happy to be driven to dualism. But Mm -hmm. this is what really leads you there, even if you don't want to go, which is the physical world doesn't have anything like a self in it at all. In other words, you could investigate the organism and the brain as much as you want, and you will never find this so-called thing, the self. You will never find it. But okay. Right. But as soon as you start thinking or talking, there it is. I mean, it's the right. it's the owner of your experience.
1: But supposing I were a cognitive scientist or a philosopher sympathetic to the project of cognitive science, couldn't I say... Well, there are certain brains that have opinions about those brains.
0: <laughs> and yeah.
1: that's one of the things in the universe.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And there's other brains that don't have opinions about those brains. And then there are things like rocks <laughs> that don't have opinions yeah. at all. Yeah. So there are these three kinds of things in the universe, just as you can say, this is an opinion I kind of don't believe. Yeah, it, but yeah, I want to steal it. as somebody said. So <laughs> oh. Like here's the different kinds of matter there is there's carbon and there's nitrogen and there's uh you know ammonia mm. and here's the different kinds of things there are there's things that don't have any opinion about anything like rocks mm-hmm. there are things that have opinions but not about themselves like cows like that grass would be good to eat but the cow has no opinion about what it is to be a cow right and then there are brains or embodied brains that do have opinions about those brains and
0: those ourselves well, good luck. I mean, you know, we don't say we don't say um, his brain has the opinion that. We say he has the opinion that. In other words, you'd have to replace our entire use of pronouns with uh, this impersonal description of brains. And I just don't think you'll... Well, what about organisms? There
1: are organisms that have opinions about those organisms. Right. Well, how do you know what it is? It's like, hey, Ralph, are you good at golf? Yeah, I am. Uh, are you good at the guitar? Not so much. So that's Ralph. Yeah. So he's one of these organisms that has opinions about itself. Well, I don't want to use the word itself. Ralph has an yeah. opinion about an organism that is identical. Right. With Ralph. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. And and his dog doesn't do that. And they're both features of the physical world. They're walking around, eating, you know, dog food and human
0: food as the case may be. No. So now we're getting close to the problem. What philosophers call the problem of indexicals. Oh my god. And I'll just quickly. We don't want to maybe go down this road too far, but one very famous indexical. I think John Perry calls it the essential index mm. of it is I. There's an important difference between saying the philosophy professor was the one who robbed the bank. And I might go around thinking that. I think of the phlo- it was the philosophy professor, like you know Colonel Mustard in the mm-hmm. hallway mm-hmm. with the candlestick or whatever. And then I might learn something new, which is, oh, my God, it was me. I did that and I'd forgotten. And now when I think I robbed the bank, I'm thinking something very different from thinking the philosophy professor robbed the bank, because now I know it was me. If you take the God's eye point of view of the physical world with all these facts about organisms that have this opinion and that opinion, just like you were describing it, mm-hmm. I would be learning something new when I found that one of those was me. I'm one of those. I'm that one. If you look at a class photo and you can look at all these funny looking kids and then suddenly it dawns on you that that one is what's me. What's the thing you're, learning? Uh, what's the that thing it you're was, learning? That it was me. But what's that? Uh, (laughs) that's uh, that's something that you don't necessarily know even if you know that that's taylor carmen Mm. john perry's example is he was walking around the supermarket and he started noticing that there was this trail of sugar and somebody was obviously (laughs) leaving this trail of sugar and so he started speeding up to try and catch up with the person he kept going around the aisles and All the while, that pile of sugar was getting bigger and bigger and bigger the more he went. And then he looked down and noticed that on his shopping cart, the bag of sugar was torn and it was leaving a trail of sugar behind him. So then he thought, oh, it was me who like he was thinking, who is the idiot who's leaving this trail of sugar? It's such a less upsetting
1: story. Than the story of Oedipus. Yes. But it has the same moral. Similar,
0: right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It
1: doesn't involve John Perry having sex with his mother, Mrs. Perry, or killing <laughs> his father, but it's the same structurally. It's the same story. Yeah,
0: so it looks like you're just never going to capture the I thoughts that we have, or I think probably the you thoughts or he and she. I mean, those are pointers that don't have the same impersonal objective reference that proper names do. Wittgenstein has another uh, interesting example when he talks about the difference between I'm in pain and he's in pain. What is it? The difference is that if I say he's in pain, you can ask me, how do you know? And I can say, well, he's holding his hand to his cheek and he's moaning and he's complaining. And Mm -hmm. if I say I'm in pain and you say, how do you know? It's at best a very weird question, right? Because I don't know that on the basis of observation. I don't look at myself and notice that I'm in pain. In fact, Wittgenstein is tempted to say that when I say I'm in pain, that's just a grammatically structured way of saying, ouch, And maybe I'm not expressing anything that I can be said to know, let alone have justification Mm. for. So I think that's one reason to think we're never going to reduce self-talk to objective descriptions. Well, hang on a
1: second. But let's say, um, I feel like coming up with the counterexample against Wittgenstein. Stein, although (laughs) props to him. He was very smart. But like, okay, I'm a writer and I'm on strike right now. Mm -hmm. And someone could say like, why are you acting so weird, Eric? You seem not to have as much pep and then you're like wandering the streets (laughs) of L.A. (laughs) and Why are you acting like that? And I'm like, huh, that's a good question. Why am I acting like that? Uh-huh. Yeah. I guess I'm in pain. Yeah. I guess I miss my job. Yeah. I guess I'm in pain.
0: Yeah. Um, That seems more complicated than ouch. Yeah, and that, this is what a lot of people have complained about. It looks like I can also say um, I didn't go to the party or I'm not going to the party because I'm in pain and it doesn't make any sense to say I'm not going to the party because ouch. No, it does You can't substitute that. So why did Wittgenstein make that mistake? <laughs> well, I'm not sure it was a mistake. I mean, oh, okay. I think his main purpose was to show you that I am in pain and he is in pain look on the surface like the very same kind of proposition. But the underlying actual, call it the pragmatic structure, may be very different. Mm -hmm. Here's what I feel like enunciating. I don't know if it's going to
1: turn out to be right, but at least I feel like saying it, which is that expressions of pain are intersubjective. They're neither objective nor purely subjective. Mm-hmm. I mean, when do we start expressing pain? When we're babies, it's part of a system which gets our primary caregivers yeah. to take care of us when we're crying. Yeah. And as beings that are part of that system, someone who could just cry and say I'm in pain, but didn't know that pain was something that he could have would be a very emotionally stunted, barely human person. Yeah. That pain language is part of what weaves us together into a group you know, uh, we're like ants or wolves or something. We're we're yeah. social organisms.
0: I think so, too. And yeah.
1: one of what I'm in pain does is it's a signal within that social organism. And I can say it or I can say it about him or he can say it about me. And if we couldn't do all those things, we wouldn't be
0: human or we wouldn't be the kind of beings that we are. What do you think of that? I think that's right. But the amount of stuff we have in common with other animals, including other apes, is falling short of this thing that our question is about Mm -hmm. because our question is about the the self so okay which is a little weird some people have pointed out that the self is a weird construction i think it's like the ant Yeah, right.
1: It may just be like... Eric and Taylor are having a conversation. The and was present. Well, no, it wasn't. Yeah, what about the and? Eric and Taylor, that's not English to say the and. Yeah, that's three
0: of us. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So in other words, self probably originates in reflexive pronouns like myself, itself, yourself, ourselves. So do you think the self is just a linguistic mistake, like saying the and? No, I don't. No. Okay. Nietzsche says something like this. Nietzsche, sometimes, like Lichtenberg, seems to think that you're making a mistake as soon as you think there's anything like the self. And there's sometimes, maybe because they're taking the word thing very literally. Mm-hmm. But they're both relying, I think, on David Hume, who has the most famous formulation of this idea. He thought that we really aren't anything like a self we're what people sometimes call a bundle of ideas in other words there really just is mental activity happening and it's bundled together and that's what i call myself but hume says famously i never catch myself at any time without a perception that's to say there's never like the perceptions and then the me having them which is what descartes thought it was that is just alone, bare, and never can observe anything but the perception. He says, when I look into my mind, all I see is the ideas and the mental activity, like the dream or the memory or the anxiety or the whatever. That's all you find when you look into your so-called self. And he thought. It's like a swarm of mosquitoes. Is there a swarm of mosquitoes? Well, what is a swarm of mosquitoes? It's just the mosquitoes, right? Mm-hmm. So he thought that there really isn't any additional thing over and beyond the ideas or the experiences, and you should just rest content with that.
1: Now, like one issue, and he probably has an answer to this one, is like, well, the, this act of trying to catch, Yeah. you don't find that either, but it's implicit in his setup that there's
0: an act of trying to catch. Right. Yeah. So what he would want to say when he was defending this view, because he did sort of retract it, I think. Mm-hmm. Or somebody retracted it. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, <laughs> it got retracted. It got retracted, yeah. sure. Is that, well the catching oneself was just more mental activity that was right. happening in other words it's like what our contemporary brain scientist or neuroscientist reductionist would want to say is look more stuff is happening in the brain which is when david hume is trying to catch himself without a perception that's neurons firing and stuff going on in the brain and that's all there is to it and don't think that there's any additional thing called the self in addition to all these synapses firing because that's just what uh, what what there is when we talk about a self but the self is a kind of fiction it doesn't really exist mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And what do you think of that? Because I bet half of our listeners are like, yes, that's correct. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Well, Hume, being a genius, Mm -hmm. (laughs) realized that he had a problem on his hands. And it's like the one you were kind of anticipating because Hume in an appendix to this part of the treatise, this is this section about the self uh, is in his early famous treatise of human nature. And was he 23 when he wrote that? This was an amazing. Late 20s, I think. Amazingly prodigious. Can't remember. I think late 20s, which was amazing prodigy. And uh, he said famously, it fell stillborn from the press. Mm-hmm. Not many people read it. Yeah. Then he went back and rewrote a shorter version of it, which became very famous and is actually in some ways better, mm-hmm. more readable. So in the appendix, he then admits that he's got a problem because in another part of the treatise, he'd been arguing that nothing really holds reality together like in the way we think it does with causal necessity.
1: At this point, Professor Carmen is interlacing his fingers to illustrate. <laughs> That's this right.
0: Point. Imagine me yes. intertwining my fingers. Going. This is not how reality is. There's just one thing happening and another thing Mm -hmm. happening, and there's no causal necessity bundling it all together. So then he thought, "Uh uh-oh, well, if my mind is a bundle of ideas, what's bundling it to make it mine? Mm -hmm. See, because when I say I am just a bundle of my ideas, even if I think, okay, don't take seriously the word I when I said I am just because, you know, there is no I. But if I want to say it, the self, is just the bundle of my ideas, where do I get the my where do I get the possession? In other words, it's my ideas and not yours. Right. The self is not all of Taylor Carmen's ideas bundled together with Eric Kaplan's ideas. It's my ideas. I, let, let me just slow this
1: down. Like somebody says, like let's say me, Eric says, there are two apples over there. I'm gonna eat one apple, and therefore there will be one apple over there. And that all seems like a very good way for me to think. Mm -hmm. But it's predicated on me thinking there are two apples over there. But if there's a guy on the couch who thinks there are four apples over there, and I don't know that I'm the one who thinks there's two apples, not the one who thinks there are four (laughs) apples, then I don't know how many apples will be left when I eat them could be three. Because I'm assuming. I think you're losing me. I, I'm starting by saying, I think there are two apples over there. Uh-huh. And I know that's what I think. And the fact that there's a guy over on the couch who thinks there are four apples over there that is not relevant to my reasoning. Right. So part of reasoning does involve knowing what I think. Yes, right. <laughs> if I think somebody else could be thinking it or that I'm not thinking it, I'm never going to get to the I think... desirable conclusion that two minus one is one. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> but, yeah, you're never going And if we can't get to two minus one is one, we're, <laughs> we're not going to give a very good account of how
0: humans yeah. function. And, and, this, you know. and this is what Kant thought. Ah, Kant. Who was Kant? So Immanuel Kant was a German philosopher, writing mostly at the end of the 18th century.
1: Now, was his family Scottish
0: also? The name, I think, was Scottish Heritage, but he was not Scottish. Oh, but we, so we owe a lot to the Scottish Heritage we do. for this topic. Anyway, yeah, they had their own enlightenment. Yes. Yeah. So Kant said something which I think is really good, which is that Descartes was wrong to think that from the cogito, the I think, you can infer or know that you're a thinking thing. Because for all you know... You could be two thinking things. Yeah, right, could right. could the,
1: the, two, the two hemispheres
0: teaming yeah. up to think. Or maybe, I don't know, Kant said this, but you know, instead of a thing, it could be just stuff. It could be like the water flowing right. through a river. And uh, who knows? A I rainbow. Mean, we yeah, just don't sure. know, right? But Kant did say that what he called the unity of apperception, which means just this oneness of your awareness of yourself, that is basic and inescapable. And it looks like Hume's idea is kind of confirmation of that. Because as soon as you try to frame the thought that There is no self. You can't even express that without invoking the first person singular possessive, like my ideas are just a bundle. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's all I am. As soon as you say, I'm the bundle of my ideas. Try to say that without saying my. The self is a bundle of ideas. Which bundle? What holds the swarm of mosquitoes together is just their spatial proximity. So there's one swarm and there's another, and you could say there's something that individuates them. In this case, it's space, that these are all together. Mm -hmm. But what is it about ideas? You can't say mine are kind of close to my head because that doesn't really make very much sense. I don't know if they are. I mean, where's my idea that 2 plus 2 equals 4? I don't think it's close to my forehead or in between my ears. Mm. It's just my idea. Well,
1: hang on a second. Supposing we were going to be skeptics about the substantiality of musical styles. And we were say that there is no such thing as a musical style. There's no such thing as cool jazz. Mm-hmm. What there are is a bunch of performances mm-hmm. that resemble each other in the space of musical style. Mm-hmm. Not It's not that one was in Bangkok and one was in New Orleans. No, yeah. but in the space of musical style, they cohere. But there is no thing... Above and beyond this similarity space, which some things occupy. What do you think of that? I think that's very plausible in a lot of cases like that. Well, Couldn't that be true of thoughts? That some thoughts cohere in the space of thought, not in the space of physical reality, but in the space of thought. And when they clump together enough, like oatmeal, (laughs) that's a self, but it's not a real
0: thing. The problem is saying what clumping means in this case, right? Um, What does clumping mean? Well, what kind of clumping is going to wind up with a self? Is it possible that my ideas and your ideas are just going to suddenly clump together and form a new person that's not me or you?
1: Well, Derek Parfit has cases like this that they're very much like um, yeah. The Derek Parfit cases I don't remember, but I do remember an Isaac Asimov story mm-hmm. called "The Gods Themselves," yeah, which is very good. Yeah, and it's it's about some aliens. Like Isaac Asimov was confronted with the fact he he was in fact a dirty old man, but he was confronted with the fact that his stories were very prudish mm-hmm. and he had never written a story about sex and also that he had never written much about aliens. So he said, I'm going to write a novel about alien sex. (laughs) And in this alien universe, there are three sexes and they're all kind of like glot monsters. Mm. They're all made of goo (laughs) and they come together and they form a being. And it's about three, Friends, who are lovers, (laughs) who are trying to find this being Ensor, or Endor, I don't remember what he was called, but they're they're, they're fighting this guy. And kind of like Perry with the sugar and Oedipus with the cause of the plague of Thebes, it turns out that they are Ensor. When they get together, they form
0: into Ensor. Um where was I going with this? Um trying to make plausible the idea that glomming could happen right so could it clumping be, clumping and gloming and could, could
1: it be that the physical separateness yeah. of humans is a contingent Fact. Yeah. Well, that is. But amongst beings who could glob together and glom together like they're sort of intelligent gunk, then maybe wh- whose thought it was would be more up for grabs. And these, this sure. Parfit has this case of Q memories. Yeah. That they're kind of like these weird darts yeah. that you can shoot somebody with and then it'll squirt stuff into their brain yeah. and they'll then they'll remember yeah. uh, me being bored watching my grandparents <laughs> watch golf yeah and they'll think it happened to them although it didn't yeah or maybe it did because what is a person in this new science fiction reality is very different
0: well i think what derek Parfit was interested in was what what hume is also talking about um uh, under this same rubric this section of the treatise is called of personal identity uh-huh.
1: but these are connected right because one of the things we want yeah. to know about is their selfness yeah but also are their selves they're they're yeah i don't think they're the same issue but they seem to be cousins I, kind of. they're very close cousins because kant doesn't actually i took a class with kasim kasam and he taught me this mm-hmm. so props mm-hmm. to him he was criticizing somebody. I think I think it might have been Patricia Churchland, uh-huh. but he was saying, like the unity of apperception is not yeah. a solution to the problem of personal identity. I think that's right. It's a solution to could there be selfedness at all? Yeah. Not are Eric and Taylor oneself
0: or two, right? Yeah, exactly right. I think um, it's really that Kantian problem that Hume is thinking about, Mm -hmm. but I think he sees them connected to this other problem. I think they are two different problems, but very closely related. Okay, interesting. The personal identity problem is usually framed as what makes me the same person across time. Okay. Um, And Parfit has a very skeptical kind of Humean view about that, which is there is no such thing.
1: Okay. Let's not talk about personal identity across time. Let's talk about what makes a pain in my toe, a thought that there are two apples and a thought that I'd like to eat one apple. What makes them belong to the same self, if anything?
0: This is why this is such a deep question is that it's hard to know. And I think we just don't have anything more basic to say Mm -hmm. than that they are your thoughts. Mm -hmm. In other words, as soon as we invoke that possessive pronoun, that's rock bottom. And there's nothing more basic than that, than you can say that's going to shed any light on that, because you've already, in posing the question, said, when I have those three thoughts, what is that? And I want to just say that's you having those three thoughts. (laughs) I mean, maybe there's not much more to say than that, but arguably it's a fundamental structure of our thinking and our experience, and there's no way to get around it. But
1: what if I'm getting my consciousness raised And one of my thoughts is I should really work more. And Mm -hmm. then someone says, Eric, is that really your thought? Or are you just playing some tape that your society put into your mind when you were a little kid and you were too weak and powerless to fight back?
0: I think we should go in this direction. So I think there's a way in which those kinds of thoughts may be a kind of estrangement of yourself from yourself because you're thinking someone else's thoughts or you're thinking thoughts that you've absorbed from your culture. Notice quickly before we leave this rarefied metaphysical issue, though, Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. your friend is asking you, Maybe you are thinking somebody else's thoughts. It's still you doing it, right? It's still your thoughts that belong to somebody else. So there's really, again, no way getting around that little corner of selfhood. But it's very possible that you are failing to be a self in another way which I think is very important. This is a kind of selfhood that you achieve and that you aspire to and that you can fall short of. Uh, So I think selfhood, there's this other normative conception of selfhood, which is that it's something like an aspiration or an accomplishment, and we can be better or worse at being selves. And that's very different from this other notion of like a soul, a thing that's just there, the way a thing might be there. Right. I've been thinking about this recently because I've been reading about ancient philosophy and ancient religion, early Christianity. And I realized that there's a huge gap in my education because there's really two different things that people are talking about when they talk about the soul on the one hand and something like spirit on the other. And I think they have a lot of the same kind of etymological roots, but they're different and Kierkegaard distinguishes them. And I think sometimes philosophers in a sort of metaphysical context think about the soul as a thing. It's mixed in with the body or it's distinct from the body, but there it is. And it either disappears at death or it lives on after death or whatever. But there's this other kind of understanding of ourselves that we have that's more like an activity and a kind of aspiration and it can fail or succeed and there can be more or less of it. It doesn't have this kind of simplicity and mere presence of a soul. And I think that spiritual conception of selfhood emerges in philosophy with Hegel and with Kierkegaard and Heidegger and this existential tradition. There's a selfhood which you're kind of working on as you live your life. Well, okay. Who's working on it? Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> you. So in other words, I think we need two concepts here. One is this like anchor, which is the what you hang the pronoun on. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. And as soon as you can say. I'm hungry or I'm tired, or maybe even just when you say yes or no, you are implicitly taking a stand and assenting to something or resisting it. As soon as children say no, maybe they're positioning themselves in relation to other selves. And then there's this other thing, this other kind of thing, like as you live your life, maybe you're just repeating what people have said to you. Maybe you're just sort of taking on other people's anxieties and worries and prejudices, and you're not really thinking for yourself or achieving some kind of autonomy or authenticity. That's another kind of selfhood it may have roots in a religious tradition more than the greek rationalist metaphysical tradition
1: are there two kinds of selfhood yeah let's take a break i think so i think i think it suddenly got real man yeah i think it's interesting all right okay we're back so i'm troubled by there being two kinds of selfhood I don't think it's just an aesthetic preference that there be one thing rather than two. Mm -hmm. Because I think it's almost like to get from being a baby to being a toddler who says no is also an achievement. Mm. Now, it's very hard to put that into words because the baby is pre-verbal and is a very mysterious creature in a lot of ways, (laughs) you know. Um, Mm. But the baby grew from being kind of part of the mother's self or... I mean, it was literally part of the mother's self before it was born. But the baby grew... And I was that baby, but that baby had to learn to do a lot of things, walk and say yes and say no and cry and get its needs met and all that stuff. And then it became like the toddler who could say no or yes. And then it became the man, the human, who's able to say But do I really want that? Is that really me? Or am I just repeating some Madison Avenue BS that was plunged (laughs) into my brain when I couldn't defend myself? So I I sort of Uh, want to say that this is a single
0: evolving hmm. story. What do you think of that? Well, I guess I'm drawn to the two concepts of self-view. The, two, view. the uh, two. For the and here's one reason that there's you, the Cartesian
1: self and the Kierkegaardian self, and they're they just sort of hang out in me. Maybe for different right. projects.
0: Maybe that's right. The Cartesian self is less than what Descartes thought it was, though. It's really just a kind of almost more like a center of gravity. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have any qualities in a way. It's like Kant's unity of that perception. It's just that there is this one, which is me. But you could avoid this worry that this is all just one developmental... I guess I don't find it a worry. I like that idea. But in any case, you can avoid that position. I see. Okay. Well, okay. In, in that case, let me throw some water on okay. it. Let me, let me put it into doubt. Because when you said the infant getting to the point of being able to say yes or no is an achievement, I'm not sure I believe that. I think that might be something that just happens. Mm-hmm. Like puberty. So puberty is not an accomplishment. It just happens. Mm-hmm. And I think actually the cognitive capacity to use pronouns understand pronouns and refer to oneself with a first person pronoun may be something that really does just happen in the brain and the the reason i think you ought to be worried about that is because it looks like there's this regress back to like well if you think that was an accomplishment who was doing it you have to have you in other words you have to take for granted the idea that the self was there to achieve that and then i wonder where that came from Mm. i mean where was that after all i mean did it come from the sperm and the egg or the embryo or and then that that sounds to me more like a soul which i don't believe in
1: but i i feel the opposite i feel like nobody was there to achieve it because nobody's really at home if the self is something the process is tending towards right so right so it's a it's one of those things where like you draw a line and then you draw another line and then you draw a third line and it's the letter k and that line that first line only became the initial stroke of the letter k when the third line was
0: added, right? but we can't help but look at it as part of K now. Oh, I see. Well, there may be a certain kind of retrospective fictionalizing of myself, like I did this, then I did that. Yeah, that's what
1: I think is true. Uh,
0: yeah, I see. Here's another way of trying to disentangle this, which is to say sometimes when we use these pronouns, we are just using them to stand in for proper names. Mm-hmm. When I say I was born, I'm not taking credit for it. No. I'm not saying I did it. It happened. Yeah, And I can say I, and I learned to walk, or I, I started grabbing my bottle... You you know, I can say that in retrospect, but I could as easily say Taylor did that, Taylor did that, Taylor did that, just like anybody else would say it. So I think it lessens the paradox precisely by saying this stuff is just happening on its own and therefore isn't really achievement or accomplishment like it's a natural process. And at some point of complexity... Now, I'm not purporting to remove all the mystery (laughs) in this, but at some point of complexity, kids start speaking and using pronouns, and then they are on the track to becoming selves. Which is actually not overnight. I mean, it takes a long time. You absorb the culture. You make use of this cognitive apparatus in order then to take responsibility for your actions and to ask for things politely and ask questions and answer questions and so on and so on. So that's the road of selfhood. It seems to me there's two different things we're talking about. One is the single individual, which is individuated as an organism, but also has this kind of mental hanging together of its experience. And with enough of the right kind of complexity for the brains we've got, which never happens with other animals, you've got use of language and self-reference and so on. And then now we're in a different domain where we can treat ourselves and each other as selves. But that wasn't happening before. That wasn't happening at age, you know, two weeks. Right. Here's
1: the puzzle that I'm interested in, Mm -hmm. which is, let's say at the age of 25 I was obsessed with career success.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then at the age of 40, I've become wiser <laughs> and I look back on myself at the age of 20 and I'm sort of like
0: who was that guy? Yeah, yeah. Who yeah.
1: was that guy? Right good. And and the answer it was me is true and the answer it wasn't me is also true. It sort of wasn't good. fully me. Yeah. I could even say I should forgive that guy because I think he was just handling a lot of societal expectations poorly. And I didn't become fully me until I realized that. And I guess I feel that that's analogous to the question of like, who was born? Was it me or wasn't it me? Well, both are true. Yeah. Because we're sort of trying to use language to describe this situation, which is both evolving And it's causing us to
0: use language in different ways. Well, that's why I think we need these two different notions. Um, Okay. Right? Like that throughout your life, you can, in a sense, become a different person, but we mean that qualitatively. So sometimes people distinguish between qualitative identity and numerical identity. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about identity in ordinary language, I think what people might have in mind is like, who do I think I am? Mm -hmm. Am I a poet? Am I a student? Am I this or that? When Parfit and Hume and people like that are talking about personal identity, they I mean numerical identity. Am I the same one? And there are two different notions, so that. That precisely allows us to say, that person that was me 50 years ago, that was me, all right. But I've become a different person in all kinds of qualitative ways, uh, even from when I was 20 or 30 or whatever. And my sense of who I am can have changed substantially. So I think when we say, who are you, there's two different questions we could be asking. Like, which one is you? Or we could be asking, how do you understand yourself as you're sort of projecting into the future beyond your current life? Right.
1: So here's my question. So let's take this person named Maximilian. And Maximilian is born. And then at the age of 20, Maximilian is an incredibly hard driving stockbroker. And then at the age of 40, you know, after a lot of pain, he goes into psychotherapy Mm -hmm. and he decides he doesn't want to be a stockbroker. He wants to scale um, cliffs Mm -hmm. using nothing but chalk to hold on. And he does that and then he plummets to his death. Now, isn't the guy who died the same Maximilian who was born? Mm
0: -hmm. Numerically, numerically the same one. Um, Is the point of the story that he was a risk taker throughout his life?
1: No. The point of the story is that the existentialist concept of the self is at one with any old concept of the self because... Maximilian's existential discovery of who he really was led to his death and yeah. the person who died was the same person who was born. Numerically the same person. So the existentialist self is the actual self.
0: Uh, well, I think maybe this raises the question of like whether you believe in the, the possibility of a radical conversion. Mm-hmm. So can somebody, like you read about St. Augustine's conversion, did he become a different person? I think it's reasonable to be skeptical about whether people really radically convert or change their lives or their characters, right. but I think it's conceivable. If you radically changed and came back on this podcast a year from now, yeah.
1: would that guy have a right to say that he was wrong now or it's a different guy?
0: I don't ah, know. well, again, I think I could say, yeah, numerically, that was me. So maybe that would lead me to take responsibility for what that other person did. But I could also say, but you know what? I'm a new person. I'm a different person. Mm-hmm. So even though, look, if I get fined or blamed or whatever for it, okay, I'll take the rap. But what's really important now, this is a kind of future looking conception of the self you know, none of that matters to me anymore. Mm-hmm. Right? I know I did all that stuff. Uh, maybe I've been forgiven, maybe I've forgiven myself. Mm-hmm. I'm a little skeptical of that idea, but suppose I really feel like I've shed my past and I'm now, I've got a new life. Got it. I think it's conceivable, and that's a different kind of self that could be really radically altered and transformed. Okay. Wouldn't it be cool if this podcast radically
1: transformed our listeners' lives?
0: Exactly. I think it probably will, no it doubt. Pro- it's yeah. almost certainly. Almost certainly. Without seven.
1: doubt, it's, it has. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think it so, already has. So you're different people yeah. uh, than you were an hour ago, and and welcome, welcome. I think you may need new driver's licenses. <laughs> a new photo ID, yeah. <laughs> but that's a question for the DMV, not for uh, a philosophy podcast. Okay, well, this was good, Terry. Thank you. All right, thank you. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye, audience. See you next week.
0: This podcast is created by Eric Kaplan and Taylor Carmen, produced by Amanda Eberhardt and edited by me, Taylor Carman. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Terrifying Questions.